amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Welcome to So Dead, a podcast that likes to take your holiday warm and fuzzies and turn them all to shit. I'm Jen Carpenter. And I'm Danny Fairman. Happy True Crime Tuesday. And happy Taco Tuesday, deadheads. We're just a few days away from Thanksgiving. And more importantly, we are just three days away from my favorite holiday, Black Friday. Do you have your plan in place? Yeah, girl. What do you do? Do you have like a, is it just you or do you go no, with no, no. family? Tell my me. My mom, my sister, my aunt, and Anna, my niece. We go Black Friday shopping. Are you no so, boys allowed. Are you so excited for Cecilia to be old enough to join? Yes and no. I like it, shopping for her. That's what I was going to say because then you wouldn't be able to her. buy her anything. Yeah. And Jamie still buys for my sister. She still buys for Anna when they go. Like mm-hmm. I'll just take Anna to a different part of the store. There's, it's really a good time. I mean, none of us are willing to fight anybody for anything. And oh, I'll fight. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'll cut a bitch. No. <laughs> <laughs> we really just have a really good time. We get on each other's nerves. We love each other. We have good jokes. We have breakfast. It's just nice. It's so much fun. I hate getting up early. Um, and we start Thursday. Yeah. So Dax and I have done that in the past on years that we don't have the kids on Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Like we will do, cause the, they keep pushing it back further and further I to know. where some of these sales start at like four o'clock on Thanksgiving. It's lovely for people um, like me. So <laughs> I know that's a big uh, controversy. I, yeah, I don't <clears throat> like that. I that, know. I just think like, I get that Let they, Thanksgiving they all want to, yeah. And they all want to leg up on each other. I mm-hmm. get it. Um, I don't like getting up early in the morning. Right. Um, I don't like big crowds. I don't even like shopping. Like I don't like grocery shopping. I don't like right. going to the store and dealing with all the nonsense. So I've really transitioned more into like online. Mm. Um, I and do I've some online. Pretty much everything. I mean, if there was something that was a you know like a doorbuster only mm-hmm. and you had to go, I would go. And I have gone many times, but. When I can do it online, I do it online now. I love, I still love going to the stores. But the biggest thing, like if I don't end up getting everything off the list that day, mm-hmm. I'm okay with it because there is online shopping and there's always good deals throughout this the rest of the month. Yeah, but or you like also, the next month. you like people more than I do. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I do. <laughs> so I think it's very fitting that you go out and do big Black Friday shopping production and I do it online. But Dave is not like he hates shopping. Hates shopping. Mm-hmm. Like if I suggest it for a date, he like gives me You suggest me the, shopping for a fuck date? Fuck yes, I do because I love shopping. Babe, let's go to Target. Uh-huh. Oh my God. And he is like, well, give me the stink eye and... He will actually, if I need him to go Black Friday shopping, he has gone with me in the past, and he's 
a gem to be around <laughs> on that day. It's like my free pass day. <laughs> Dax and I are kind of opposite there. He, I'm very much like do it online, send an email, make a phone call whenever possible. And he's always like, I need to stop in. I need to run in. I need to go. And I'm like, why do you want to go places and interact with humans? Who does that these days? So So we're kind of opposite there. That's funny. Yeah, very opposite. Um, So today, though, I'm going to tell you guys about a super fucked up crime that took place here in Michigan on Thanksgiving in 1998. Okay, so this story takes place in Muskegon, Michigan, on Sunday, November 29th, 1998. Okay. Muskegon is about 113 miles northwest of Lansing, so about a two-hour drive from yeah. where we sit now. Yes. It's a town that's on Lake Michigan and definitely a vacation destination in the Mitten. Their population in 1998 was about 39,000 people. Which, for comparison purposes only, Lansing had a population of 127,000 people in 1998. Yeah. So it sounds like a lot, but it's not. It's not a super lot. No. It's a relatively small town. So what happened on that day in November would surely shock and affect most people in town. Mm. Stephen and Linda Pravaki lived in a multi-level home in Muskegon right across the street from Michigan Adventure which is a theme park with roller coasters and other amusement park-like rides. It's twice the fun. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Can you imagine, like, sitting on your front porch? I mean, this is so sidebar. Can you imagine sitting on your front porch looking at roller coasters? That'd be kind of cool. Yeah. Or old after a while hearing the screams and stuff. Well, what the thing about it to me that stands out is that I've been to Michigan's Adventure many times. Mm-hmm. So we've been past the Pravaki home probably mm-hmm. when the Pravakis still lived there. Right. So that's the thing that's an eerie feeling, me. right? Mm-hmm. Um, Stephen was a fifth grade teacher and Linda worked as a receptionist at a local doctor's office. Okay. They were the very proud parents of two teenage sons, Jed and Seth. Jed was 19 and a student at Muskegon Community College. Seth was 18 and a senior at Reith's Puffer High School. I remember that school. Um, my ex-husband, <clears throat> who I dated in high school, played wrestled. Um, mm-hmm. And so we went to wrestling t- tournaments, and there were schools from everywhere. Mm-hmm. And Reith's Puffer was one of them. And I was like, sounds like a fish. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a fish. That's funny. Doesn't it? A Kinda. little. I think of candy or cereal. If any. Reese's Puffs. Yeah. Reese's Puffers. Yeah. If anyone from Reese Puffer is listening, I'm sorry. I just had to share that. It's our association. It's not to be offensive. (laughs) Um, So they were your typical Midwest family who were lovingly referred to by friends as the Beaver Cleaver family. If And for reference, if people don't know who the Beavers were, like the Beaver Cleaver family. The Cleavers. Yeah. Was it the Cleaver? But Beaver. Beaver Beaver was the kid's name. The kid. Right. But people always refer to like perfect families, and I'm using quotation marks, as Beaver Cleaver families. Yeah. Yeah. I I love that Cleaver's the last name, though, because then I just am like. You think of killer. Yeah. You weren't perfect. (laughs) You were serial killers. Right. Um, They were all great people and good members of the community. Seth, however, was starting to have some mental health issues. A year prior, in 1997, Seth was arrested twice for shoplifting, a CD, and some beer. Mm. 
Yes. Uh-huh. He'd been ordered to spend 10 days in a county youth home and required to receive counseling. He was also prescribed Wellbutrin for depression. Mm-hmm. His parents continued to take him to counseling over the next year, but argued with him frequently. The week of Thanksgiving in 98, Seth asked his dad, Stephen Provacki, if he could buy a car. His dad told him no, and this is what is said to be the cause of what happened a few days later. Because his dad wouldn't buy him a car. Right. Okay. I mean, I'd be pissed. Just kidding. Do you often ask your dad for cars? <laughs> no, I... Hey, dad. <laughs> right. Can I have a car? Right. No, I don't. Um, so now we are back to November 29th, 1998. It was three days after Thanksgiving, but the Bravaki family was celebrating late that year. They had food being prepared. Stephen Pravaki had left to get his father, John Pravaki, who lived nearby. Linda was taking a shower. Jed was in the living room watching TV on the couch, and Seth was in his bedroom loading a twenty-two caliber handgun. Oh my. Seth finished loading the handgun and then went to the living room. He aimed the gun point blank at the back of Jed's head and fired, killing him instantly. His oh dad God. and grandfather arrived shortly after and met Seth in the entry of the home. Seth quickly shot his dad in the back of the head and his grandfather in the neck. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. But John Pravaki didn't die right away, so for good measure, Seth fired one more time with a kill shot to his own grandfather's head. Oh, my God. That's insane. Yeah. He then made his way upstairs where his mother was getting out of the shower. He shot Linda Pravaki in the head once, killing her instantly. A short time later, Jed's girlfriend, April Boss, arrived to the Pravaki home to celebrate Thanksgiving with the family. She discovered the bodies of John and Stephen and thought it was a joke, so she made her way to the kitchen. (gasps) Seth didn't know she was joining them for dinner, so was a little surprised to see her show up. But he couldn't leave any witnesses, so he shot and killed her too. This makes me sad. Oh, That's just crazy because, you know, it... Just she was so close, Mm -hmm. you know. She wasn't there when it happened. She showed up after and had anything been different. Had she tried to, you know, a lot of times Mm -hmm. kids want double, triple confirmation. My son will be like, are you picking me up from school? You're picking me up from school, right? Mm -hmm. You are the one picking me up today, (laughs) you know. So if there had been like one more text or something, one more anything that would have set off her alarm bells, she was Mm -hmm. just so close to not being a part of this thing that had nothing to do with her. I know. They didn't have text back then. That's true. It was 1998, wasn't Mm -hmm. it? But I know what you're saying. Seth then called his best friend, 18-year-old Stephen Clayton Wallace, and said, It's done. I killed my parents. Oh, my God. He had apparently confided in his friend the day before that he was going to kill them. Apparently, Stephen thought it was typical teenager versus parent drama and didn't think the statement held any weight. Seth asked Stephen to come over and help get rid of the bodies. When Stephen showed up, so apparently he was like, okay, this is so bizarre to me. Like, why would you go? Do you think it was fear or like morbid curiosity? Like, this asshole is full of shit. There's no way that he just murdered his whole family. I'm going over there to call his bluff type of thing, maybe? Maybe. They, I mean, they were best friends, so... Weird. If it was a bluff, he, they were just going to hang out, you know? Right. I don't know. 
But when Stephen showed up, he and Seth concocted a plan to make it look like a robbery gone bad. They started to move the bodies around and grab some valuable items to, to remove from the house. After a few hours of rearranging the murder scene, Stephen Wallace had to leave to run some errands, but assured Seth that he would be back. Stephen took with him the murder weapon. He tossed it in a pond 10 miles from the home in a park. He dropped the clip in one end and the handpiece in the other end. Hmm. Interesting, right? Like that to me is like thought out. Well, and what a risk because this, you know, thing that maybe you didn't believe was real or morbid curiosity now or you're fear a part or of. whatever. Now you've touched a murder weapon that just killed right. five people. Yes. It's interesting. He returned a video to Blockbuster and then he went to a group meeting of a church youth group. Oh my God. This is where I say, what the fuck? <laughs> Seth had also left the home. He went to the local Meyer Meyer grocery store. Meyer Thrifty Meyer. Acres. If you're, from, <laughs> if you're local, that didn't need to be expanded upon. If you're not, Meyer is like our big grocery store. It's like our I Walmart. It's our local Walmart. I don't. We have Walmart too, though. Yeah, but I don't know how people in states that don't have Meyer live because that's always been. My Our grocery store. store. <laughs> but they have like a Harris Teeter and like the Piggly Wiggly. I was going to say like Piggly Wiggly. Yeah, they have those things. And they have what? The H-E-B? Yeah. Or they call it the Heb? I don't, you know. <laughs> I don't know. You know what I'm talking about? I don't know about? that one. It's down south. Hmm. But yes, when my husband was stationed at Fort Hood and I would go visit him there, I was like, how are they living? There's no mire. This you is know. all dumb. I do Publix? Lo- I do love a good mire. Publix. Publix. That's, That's another one. one. So anyway, Seth goes to Meyer. He purchased some duct tape that he planned to use to fake the robbery. He also stopped at a local gas station where he dropped the shell casings in a trash bin and stopped at another friend's house to hang out for a bit. Did he not realize that Meyer and the gas station have video surveillance or? I mean. He was probably just in a state. He clearly wasn't making good choices in general that day. No, he wasn't. Oh, my gosh. Um, Both boys returned to the Pravaki home to finish cleaning up. They started to move the bodies around and mop the floors. So they originally had planned to bury the bodies, wrapped them in sheets, decided that the bodies were too heavy, and so they unwrapped them and tried to make it look like a robbery. That's how they got to that point. Weird. Yeah. So that's why there's... Quite a mess yeah. all over the house because they've been moving them. Figuring out what to do and yes. Um, so they moved Jed Pravaki to the basement of the home. April and Grandpa John Pravaki were moved to a room off the garage. And Stephen Pravaki was moved to the driveway. As Stephen Wallace was standing over the body of Stephen Pravaki, a car pulled into the driveway. You see April Boss, Jed Pravaki's girlfriend, she didn't show up for work that night. So this is hours after. Right. Because, I mean, he's gone to Blockbuster. <laughs> They've gone, to, gone church to, meeting. to church meeting. They've went and hung out with friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is hours later. So April did not show up for work. Um, her mother worked with her at this facility and knew it was out of character for April to miss work. She knew April had gone to the Pravaki home for a Thanksgiving dinner around 1.30 that day and hadn't heard from her since. After many attempts to call the home, April's mother and stepfather 
Linda and Tom Cooper drove to the Pravaki home. This makes me sad. When they pulled in the driveway, they saw a tall white guy in a flannel shirt Mm -mm -mm. standing over what looked like a dead body. Can't trust those. Nope. When he saw the Coopers, he took off running into the nearby woods. When the Coopers got out of the car, they found Stephen Pravaki laying in the driveway, dead. They ran in the house to grab the cordless phone and came back out to call the police. Police arrived to the home to find the Pravaki family and April Boss all dead in different rooms. They also found so much blood in almost every room of the home and described as the worst crime scene they had ever seen to date. Mm. Soon after the police arrived, Seth Pravaki's accomplice, Stephen Wallace, emerged from the woods that he had earlier fled to. He approached officers and started to spill the beans. Stephen was arrested, of course, but Seth Pravaki was nowhere to be found. The next day, at Reith's Puffer High School, word started to spread about the massacre at the Pravaki home. April Boss and Jed Pravaki had both graduated the year before and still had many friends there. Many students walked around in disbelief. An entire Reith's Puffer family was dead, and the student believed to be responsible was still on the run. That's so crazy. I can't imagine that feeling. No. You know? I mean, I think I, to me, it reminds me of, um, gosh, was it this summer, early spring when, you know, you just don't think about like how quickly violence erupts, how quickly Mm -hmm. your day to day, your normal life, what you're used to can change. Um, and then I believe it was this summer. I, my, my perception of time is way off. Um, but that the man that was going around Lansing killing his ex-girlfriends yes. in the middle of the night. Yes. Um, we probably won't cover that. We don't usually no. do super fresh things. Mm-mm. But this recently happened. Was it, mm-hmm. do you, was it this summer? Yeah. Okay. Um, so a man went around the Lansing area. Mm-hmm. Um, he killed two of his ex-girlfriends and was trying to get into the house of a third when police were called. Mm -hmm. So there's two dead women. They're trying to track him down there. You know, he's on a killing spree, this and that. And this is here. This is where Mm -hmm. we live. And it was just so sudden from everything's cool and it's summer. And now now there's a man on a killing spree Mm -hmm. and our neighbors are being murdered. Right. Um, And this reminds me of that. You know, they were just doing their thing. And then all of a sudden this horrible thing has happened. And you think about it, it was Thanksgiving. So kids went home for Thanksgiving, Mm -hmm. the long Thanksgiving weekend. You come Mm -hmm. back to school and it's, you know, finals and Christmas and now this thing. And it's it's just crazy. Sad. Um. So one student, 18-year-old Genevieve Simonelli, she left school early that day to deal with her grief. Mm. She found herself driving around town in the rain for a while when she came across a hitchhiker. It was a tall, soaking wet Seth Provaki, which she didn't realize until he was in her car with her. Okay. Don't pick up a hitchhiker. Nobody pick up a hitchhiker. Ever. Especially a teenage girl picking up... (sighs) An, uh, what appears to be an adult male or a mm-hmm. peer. No, ma'am. Right. I mean, here's the thing, too, though, and because I, I don't want to shame her. No. It's a very small town, so yeah. it's a world that maybe we're not used to. But just as a rule of but thumb. But as a rule of thumb, especially now in 2019, mm-hmm. don't do it. Uh, no. 
When she realized it was him, she tried to keep her cool and just take him to the place he wanted to be dropped off at. Um, she dropped Seth off at one of his friend's houses. Mm. Genevieve quickly dropped him off and drove to the nearest payphone where she tipped off authorities. Good for her. Yes. When police arrived, they found Seth in the pole barn of his friend's house. So apparently no one was home, you know, because it's Monday, a work day. Middle of the day. Yeah. He snuck in there um, in the pole barn to hide. Mm. This pole barn he was apparently really familiar with because they had band practice there. Okay. He was in a band called Dementia. Oh. How is that working out for your tour names? Stop. <laughs> anyway, um, police now had both Seth Provaki and Stephen Wallace in custody. They were both facing charges of five counts of open murder. When police learned the story, they reduced the charges against Stephen to accessory after the fact. During the trial, dozens of students showed up to show support for April Boss and the Provaki family. They lined the hallway outside the courtroom and waited every day until Seth was sentenced. During the trial, Seth expressed remorse for his actions. He said that he would take it back if he could. However, also during the trial, Seth asked the judge if he would be able to leave prison anytime soon. Oh my god. Apparently, he was more worried about his own freedom rather than the family he had just murdered or, you know, the other family and friends that were in the courtroom trying to make sense of all of it. Um, Seth Provaki pleaded guilty on all charges and sentenced to five life terms in prison. Before sentencing, he asked the judge if he could see the world before he was sentenced. What? He was denied. The judge didn't say... Sure. I can show you the world. <laughs> Keep going. You're singing. I'm not singing any more than that. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, That's the one judge, of my favorite songs. <laughs> I imagine the judge went like this. Are you fucking kidding me? I would. I hope so. Right. So Stephen Wallace was acquitted on the charges he faced. The jury felt that he operated in fear, and the only reason he helped Seth was so that Seth wouldn't kill him also. He also stated that he did it because he was afraid. Okay. So maybe it was a little bit of both. Maybe he went over there because he was scared or because he was skeptical, you know, morbid mm-hmm. curiosity. Like, yeah, right. But he went back. After but he left to run errands, he at, went back. But at that point, well, that's true. I mean, he should have that's at that the part point that, called the police. Absolutely. That's the part that hangs me up. But when you're scared, I mean, your friend has just killed five people. Why wouldn't he kill you if you crossed him. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So I right. get that. I, I can see that. I don't know if I believe it, but I can see right. it as a yeah. possibility. Yep. I mean, all you need is a little bit of doubt. Yeah. Um, and then on a weird side note, a week after the murders, someone broke into the Pravaki home and stole items from Seth's room that included a jacket, a pager, speakers, and a ring. Weird. Uh huh. A family member had discovered the break in when they arrived to clean the home. Mm. Which, when you think about what they were probably there to clean, makes me mm. so sad for them. You know, there are companies that yes. do that, but I know somebody are... who has one. Really? Mm-hmm. There are people that feel that it's, you know, they need to do it. Yeah. I, I don't know. Be one of those people. I don't ever want to know what no. I would choose. Um, April Boss was buried in Sunrise Memorial Gardens in Muskegon. 
Stephen Pravaki, Linda Pravaki, Jed Pravaki, and John Pravaki all had a joint service that was held at the high school gymnasium where people shared memories of them. The gymnasium was packed. I believe it. Um, the Pravaki home was torn down years later and now sits as an empty lot. Mm. Um, you would think my story would end and be done by now. There's a little bit more to the story that makes it just a little bit more fucked up. Hmm. Stephen Wallace continued to have many brushes with the law over the next several years. In fact, a few weeks after he was acquitted, he pleaded no contest to misdemeanor property destruction. He was ordered to pay restitution, fines, and costs for damaged mailbox and a car during a vandalism spree that happened on the night of the Provaki murders. What? When he left their home to re- return the video... He apparently met up with a bunch of kids, other kids, and they went on a vandalizing spree. Weird. You know, that must have been like in between his church meeting. Right. What a fucker. Yeah. In 2003, 2005, and 2006, he was convicted of domestic violence. On the third conviction, he was sentenced to jail time. When he violated that probation, he was sentenced for another 90 days in jail. Also in 2005, he pleaded guilty to attempted resisting and obstructing police. So he tried to resist arrest, but they arrested his ass anyway. That's right. Which landed him in jail and and in a substance abuse program. Sounds like he needed it. I know. In 2007, he pleaded guilty to receiving and concealing stolen property, which was... 500 pounds of copper wire from Consumers Energy. Oh, my. He was sentenced to probation, but violated that and was sentenced to 28 months to seven years in prison. Like, clearly the probation isn't working for him. Right. These are probably all small-time crimes, but... Yeah, we need to do something here. (sighs) Mm Mm-hmm. In April of 2009... The body of 29-year-old Andrea Lee Mira was found alongside the road in Eggleston Township. She was an inmate at the Muskegon Jail and was on work release that January when she wandered off at lunch and never returned. She died of a heroin overdose, and it turned out that she was the mother of Stephen Wallace's two children. Oh, my gosh. So the last information I found on Stephen Wallace was in 2010, and it said that he moved out of the area. Didn't say where, didn't say if he had his kids. Ugh, what a mess. Yeah. Another twist of events. Seth Pravaki was serving his sentence at Kinross Correctional Facility in the Upper Peninsula. Okay. During his time there, he accrued 29 prison misconducts. Jeez. Which included theft, fighting, assault, possession of a weapon, substance abuse, and gambling. In 2006, he claimed to have found Jesus, Jesus. but that faith, <laughs> yeah, Jesus, Jesus, <laughs> um, that faith didn't last long because in July, on July 25th, 2010, 12 years after he murdered his entire family, he and two fellow inmates attacked a semi-truck driver who was making a delivery to the prison <gasps> and hijacked the semi. Oh my God. They drove and broke a hole through fencing around the prison, but then got the truck tangled up in the second layer of fencing. The other two inmates, who were also serving time for murder, surrendered, but Seth Pravaki kept running. 
He ran through the hole of the fence that he had made and was crossing the street when a perimeter officer shot him in the head and killed him. Good. Uh-huh. An officer involved in the case said that to him it seemed like justice that Seth Provaki died of a gunshot to the head since he was, that's exactly how he killed his family in April Boss. Mm. Um, so we had both heard this story before. But we heard it told by someone it affected personally when we went to the My Favorite Murder live show earlier this year. Yes. Um, this was a hometown murder. So if you follow My Favorite Murder, you know that at their live shows, they invite a member of the audience to come up on stage and they can tell about one of their hometown murders. So fellow murderino, Tara, she got up and she told this story. It took her a while because she was crying. Mm. You could really feel the emotion. She yeah. was friends and coworkers with April Boss. And, you know, kudos to her for sharing that with all of us. And I just remember sitting there crying. And yeah. Just, it was really sad. Yeah. So I have sources for this story. Um, quite a few of them. <laughs> um, it just means you did your job. Right. Murderpedia.org. Uh, Battle Creek Battle Creek Inquirer, Friday, December 4th, 1998, by Lisa Singhanya. Nice. Yeah. CBS News, Thursday, December 3rd, 1998, titled A Nightmare in Muskegon, and that is by the CBS staff. An MLive article by John S. Hosman, dated November 23rd, 2008. Um, Muskegon Chronicle, April 4th, 2019, by Cindy Fairfield. There was another one for from Muskegon Chronicle by Cindy Fairfield, February 12th, 2009. I also used Google Maps. <laughs> um, I listened to a podcast called Murderous Minors, Killer Kids, on January 18th, 2018. And another MLive Article by Lynn Moore, November 19th, 2018. But that's the Provaki murders <sighs> for Thanksgiving. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. You want to know what's even crazier? Tell me. There is another Thanksgiving murder that took place in Muskegon. Stop it. I came across it actually when I was looking for photos to use for this episode. Mm -hmm. And I almost missed it because, you know, you see the headline, Thanksgiving yep. Day Murder, Muskegon. Yeah. You're like, yeah, That's I know. That's what it is. The Provaki right. Murders. I've right. heard it. Um, but no, there's another one. Um, maybe even a worse one. Oh, no. How, how can that be? Oh, it's bad. Oh, God. So... I mean, if you're sensitive to these types of things, maybe don't listen to So Dead at all. Um, but, but even those of you with hardened hearts, this one's going to be hard to get through. Oh, boy. Um, okay. I got a lot of this information from a Los Angeles Times article written by Mark Fritz on December 20th, 1987. Um, an Associated Press article from November 27th, 1987 that had no author cited. Lots of old court documents. Uh, a 1989 episode of the Oprah Winfrey show. Stop it. Did you watch the episode? I watched the clip, yeah. Shut the fuck up. I'm jealous. And an MLive article written by Lynn Moore on November 26th, 2017. So here we go. Bartley James Dobbin, who went by Bart, was born in West Michigan on April 4th, 1961. He was popular in school and active in the community. 
Around the age of 16, according to his mother, he became a bit of a religious fanatic and began trying to shove his beliefs down other people's throats. Always be leery of those people. I fucking hate that. I do too. I am not, like we've talked before, not religious, but I don't tell anybody to not be. If you are whatever you are, own it, be proud, but please don't try to force me to be that. It's going to be horrible. I'm, I'm very accepting of, you know, like you said, everybody be who you are, believe what you want to believe, um, but allow allow me to do the same. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Ugh. Okay. So um, after high school, he got a job at the local foundry, Cannon Muskegon Corporation in Norton Shores, which is a small suburb of Muskegon. Um, bear with me here because I am way out of my depths on this one, but I'm going to do my best to explain it anyway, a la Google. A foundry is a factory that produces metal castings by melting metal into molten liquid and then pouring it into molds to cool and solidify. To do this, the metal is placed in a large cauldron-looking contraption called a ladle. The ladle is suspended over a giant furnace. When the furnace is turned on, flames shoot out and heat up the ladle, turning it red hot and melting the contents inside at temperatures upwards of 1,000 degrees. Bart was described by his boss as friendly, outgoing, and energetic. He didn't drink, smoke, or swear, which his co-workers gave him a hard time about, um, to which his boss told a reporter that Bart's most racy comeback was, Don't be a smart Alice. Not Alec, Alice. Don't be a smart Alice. (laughs) Um, Dumb. Bart met a devout Christian named Susan at his church, and the two quickly fell in love. They were married in 1983 when they were both 22. They moved to a little pink house on Amity Avenue. Amity, like Amityville? Of course. On Amity... Now I can't say it. (laughs) That's what I get for trying it twice. Uh, On Amity Avenue in Muskegon, and on December 2nd, 1984, they welcomed their first son, Bartley Joel Dobbin, who they called Joel. Shortly after Joel was born, Bart began exhibiting erratic and troubling behavior. He thought that the registration numbers on trucks were telephone numbers, and every time he saw one, he would pull over at the nearest phone booth to call the number. What? Yeah. Um, He believed that people were trying to harm his family and that mirrors were being used to spy on them. Here's the best one. What? Wait, here's the best. He became convinced that Susan was having an affair with a member of KISS. <laughs> like the band Kiss. No, that was Cher. He also thought Kiss had a surveillance van parked outside their house that was sending laser beams into the home. He was worried that the laser beams would bounce off the walls and kill his infant son, so he covered windows, television sets, mirrors, and pictures with towels and baby diapers. Do you think that he used clean baby diapers? Ew. Dirty ones would stick better. Bug. <laughs> For somebody who does not like the poop jokes. I know. Well done. Well <sighs> done. He also anointed the baby's room with olive oil. Yeah. In September of 1985, Bart's behavior became especially peculiar. Susan thought he could benefit from a weekend getaway... 
So they left baby Joel with a family member and went out of town. While they were gone, Bart began to panic because he said that God told him the baby was in danger. So he insisted they go back to get the baby. To do that, he drove 80 miles an hour down two-lane roads, endangering both his life and Susan's. And other people. And other people. Absolutely. (laughs) The police were called, and Bart was taken to the hospital for a psychiatric evaluation. He refused voluntary treatment because he was worried that the hospital would use shock treatment on him, which he probably fucking needed. (laughs) Um, So his wife (laughs) petitioned to have him committed to the Kalamazoo Regional Psychiatric Hospital. Bart Dobbins spent two months in the facility where he was diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenic with an overt religious preoccupation um, who believed that God was going to come soon and take care of things, as he put it. He was placed on a strict regimen of psychotropic drugs and released. When he returned to work, his co-workers had another thing to make fun of, and they did. These grown-ass men would literally pin signs to Bart's back that said, kick me, I'm crazy, and leave what? similar things around his workspace. Fucking assholes. In late 1985, Susan became pregnant with the couple's second son and gave birth to Peter David Dobbin on August 30th, 1986. So she continued to fuck this dude while he was a lunatic? Yes. No. Um, That same year, Bart became convinced that babies were being ground up at the food company where Susan worked. Dude, he had schizophrenia. Yeah, he did. He'd already been diagnosed and was supposed to be on medication for it. Did you already say that? I did, but if you were paying attention, you would have heard me. (laughs) Yes. He was in a facility for two months and was diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenic and put on drugs. So cut that out. Got it. Okay. (laughs) Um, I'm on it now. Okay. (laughs) He still believed that she was having extramarital affairs, maybe with the Rolling Stones, Aerosmith. Who knows, right? Um, And he often referred to her as Jezebel. Um, He also became obsessed with the fate of missing children. Kind what? Of weird. Right. So he was very, he had theories about what was happening to children that went missing. And we'll get into that. Interesting. And, okay. You know, the ones that weren't being ground up at his wife's factory. Right. Um, in early 1987, he joined a fundamentalist sect called the Emmanuel Fellowship Church and stopped taking his medication on the advice of his quote, unquote, crazy, self-ordained preacher, a man named Rude Vaughn. But his medication wasn't working Wasn't fucking working, exactly. He likened holiday celebrations to pagan rituals and forbid his children from participating. In April 1987, he was arrested when he violently broke up a family Easter egg hunt. He filed for divorce, and Susan filed for a personal protection order barring him from the family home and from contacting her or the children. Fuck yeah, she did. Mm, don't jump on Susan's bandwagon yet. Uh-oh. Six days after the protection order was issued, Bart violated it and was arrested again. His jail sentence was waived when he agreed to go back on his medication. At his hearing, the judge said, We don't want to come in after the fact and say... I wish I could have done something to prevent Dobbin from hurting somebody. And I bet that those words are etched on the judge's grave if he is dead. If he's still alive, they're going to be. 
But by October of 1987, Bart had already stopped attending sessions at his mental health clinic. And yet, Susan took him back and welcomed him into their home. By this point, she was pregnant with their third son. Oh my God, girl, put the dick down. (laughs) Even though Bart routinely referred to his wife as Jezebel and his parents as pagans and heathens, and even though he hated holidays, they made plans to spend Thanksgiving 1987 with Bart's family at his parents' house. Shortly after midnight on Thanksgiving Day, Bart left the family home and went to visit a co-worker by the name of Arthur Zatt. The two discussed religion, and Bart read scriptures through the night, focusing in particular on God's trial of men by fire. Bart confided in Zat that he believed Judgment Day was coming and that his children were going to die because God would kill Jezebel's children. He also told his friend that he believed missing children were being burned at the foundry in anticipation of said Judgment Day, and that he feared the same fate for his own children. He told Zat that he was going to take his children to the foundry and burn them himself what? so that he could be gentle with them and they would feel no pain. And Zat is a piece of shit because he did nothing with this information. Bart left his friend's house at 4 a.m. and returned home. At 4 a.m.? Yeah, he was there at midnight. So he's there all, like, it was Thanksgiving, but it was midnight to 4 right. a.m. Jeez, oh, Pete. <clears throat> like, go to bed, right. dude. Later that day, as the family was headed to Bart's parents' house, he stopped off at the foundry. He told Susan he needed to get his Bible, and he wanted to show his kids where he worked. At this point, he'd been at the foundry nearly 10 years. The foundry was shut down for the holiday, so it was safe to take the kids inside. Bart took three-year-old Joel and one-year-old Peter out of their car seats and took them inside. Susan, who was pregnant with baby Jacob, waited in the car. Bart stopped to talk to the security guard and signed the visitor's log, then took the kids to the area where he worked. He placed them in the giant foundry ladle and climbed inside with them. He told them that the slag, which is basically like um, molten metal residue, it basically turns into like little tiny rocks. Mm -hmm. He told them that it was just like sand and that they were in a big sandbox. The three of them played for a few minutes before Bart climbed out of the ladle, placed the lid on top, lit the torch, and returned to the guard station at the entrance of the plant. Susan asked where the kids were, and Bart told her that he'd put them in the furnace. He then calmly turned to the security guard and asked him to turn off the furnace. The security guard called 911, and when firefighters arrived, they raced in vain to the ladle, which was red hot from the outside. According to the coroner, the boys died quickly and relatively painlessly as they were asphyxiated by the 1,300-degree temperatures. Bart was arrested, of course, but it took over two years for him to go to trial as a battle raged about his competency due to his mental illness, which neither side denied was a contributing factor to the murder of his two little boys. Susan took the odd stance of standing by her man. What the fuck? A man that she had separated from several times during their four-year marriage was currently in the process of divorcing had a restraining order against, and had just murdered her two little boys. She's a dumb bitch. Listen, she dropped the pending divorce petition and became Bart's biggest supporter. In July of 1988, she gave birth to the couple's third son, Jacob. In November of 1988, she told a reporter, We may end up having to move away from here, but I want him home. Home with me. Now, 
I am not big on victim blaming, but here's what I want you guys to do. Knowing everything that I've just told you, I want you to go to our website and click on the page for this episode. We're going to post the link to Susan's Oprah interview. I think it's maybe like five, six minutes long. Watch it. You know the real story, and now watch the story she tells. To me, that is not a well woman. She's Mm. complicit, she's in denial, and she's an enabler. She's also a huge fucking liar. Um, But that's all I'm going to say on it. I want you guys to watch it yourselves. Um, Bart Dobbins' trial began in May 1989 when he was 28 years old. The trial lasted nine days, and on May 17, 1989, Bart was found guilty of two counts of first-degree murder, but mentally ill, meaning he would serve two life sentences without the possibility of parole, but would also receive treatment for his mental illness. He was sent to the Richard Hanlon Correctional Facility in... Ionia. Ionia, where he remains today. Bart's family became advocates for better treatment of people with mental illness, and Susan finally divorced him in 1992. Um, I want to end this super fucked up story with a quote from Oprah Winfrey herself. She said to Susan, So your husband incinerated your babies, and you have forgiven him. And that is the super fucked up second Thanksgiving murder in Muskegon. I love Oprah. Yeah, I know. Oprah's great. Mm-hmm. And it's vintage Oprah, too, which, mm-hmm, is, even which better. is even better. I mean, at least they became advocates for mental health. Right. And, and so I you got to appreciate that. But it's so sickening for those babies. Yeah. It was really hard. It's gross. One. They call it the Foundry Ladle Thanksgiving Day Murders, which is a very long title. <laughs> not catchy um, at all. It's not catchy. And I've never heard of that. Mm-mm. Like I said, I think I just have been skipping over that story. And I think a lot of us that remember the Pravaki murders do because we think we know about the Muskegon Thanksgiving Day murder mm-hmm. and we don't realize there have been two. And it's relatively recent in Both the of 80s. Them. Mm-hmm. Both of them. Whoa. Nutty. Is what I say. Whoa. Um, like uh Joey from That Show Blossom. Whoa. That Show Blossom? It is the show. The show? Aside from Designing Women and Golden Girls. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's filed up time. Um, let's lighten this mood. And today we're going to tell you guys our best Black Friday stories. <laughs> See how I just sing when we you talk about love Black it Friday? So much. Um, it doesn't have to be your best. It could be like your worst story. Yeah, like the best story, which could be a good or a bad thing. Yeah. I love those. Yeah. You wanna go? I can go first. Go ahead. Mine's not super exciting. Mine's not either, but Mine's it's like okay. a braggy. Mine is too. Like a super mom moment. Mm-hmm. Do it. Um, so I have expressed in a previous episode that I prefer to shop online mm-hmm. whenever possible. Last year, my kids and I were in Orlando on Thanksgiving. We were actually fly. We'd been there for a week and we were flying back home on Thanksgiving day. Um, and so I wasn't at home. You know, most of the sales start on Thanksgiving now. And I wasn't home to go through the ads and make a plan and go to the stores. Mm-hmm. So with like, I think I think we had to get up something sickly ridiculous at like five, like you do for flights, mm-hmm. like five in the morning, mm-hmm. something right. stupid. Um, we had to get up super early for our flight. Um, and prior to that, I stayed up the night before till midnight from our little condo in Orlando and got online. And went and bought literally everything I wanted online. 
and then got up a few hours later and flew home. And I just felt very in control of my life in that moment. Not that I am because I'm not. But in that moment, I was like, look at you handling stuff. I love those moments. I have those (laughs) moments. Those are always good ones. Yeah. Mine was, this is so dumb. (laughs) I want to hear it anyway. We were shopping at Walmart and we had quite the toy haul. And the lines were dumb. Like oh my super God, duper the line. I can't that's the part I can't handle is the lines. But Little. if you're with a group of people, you just stand there and chit chat anyway. I never but am. it's still annoying. I'm always you know, alone. There's no carts. Like you don't get a cart. We're never there early enough to get a cart. So we're like pushing stuff with our feet through the Well, if you had a cart, you couldn't get it through anything. Right. Well, usually one person will stay with the <sighs> cart and the other one will run yeah. up and down the aisle. But anyway, so the lines were super long. So we're like, oh fuck, we gotta wait in this line. And all of a sudden I look over. And the entire department was open and there was nobody in line. <laughs> we paid. We were in and out. We went in the, That's now that I've told everybody my secret, but where you buy the tires at Walmart, that's where we bought our haul. That's amazing. That Don't was you love favorite. it when stuff like that happens? Yes. It's like somewhere I did get good karma and it has come <laughs> back to me in that moment. <laughs> Oh, my God. Well, thank you guys so much for making us a part of your day. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon at So Dead Podcast. You can also find us online at SoDeadPodcast.com and email us your feedback and story ideas to SoDeadPodcast at gmail.com. We'll see you guys in a couple weeks. Now get out there and shine. You magnificent what the fucks. And happy Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving, everybody. And happy Black Friday. Someday we'll get better at that. Yeah, not today. Not today. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.